And tonight, looking at our text, we're going to pick it up in 2 Chronicles chapter 7. And as we've been in 2 Chronicles, I mentioned when we started this book that we begin with a month with Solomon. And this is our fourth Sunday, excuse me, fourth Saturday with Solomon here in the sanctuary. We saw him getting, asking for wisdom from the Lord and then getting ready to build the temple. Then we saw he completed the temple, brought in the Ark of the Covenant to the Holies of Holies at the temple to dedicate everything to the Lord. And then we saw last week his amazing prayer as he prayed, thanking the Lord, interceding for the people, encouraging the people. And so as we come into the text tonight, we're still in that amazing day where they brought in the Ark of the Covenant, the glory of the Lord fell in that cloud that filled the sanctuary. Everybody's there, all the priests are there. It's the event of the century. It's really the event of the millennium because how many times do you dedicate a temple to the Lord and have his presence come and fill the sanctuary? It's like a once in a human experience day. And as Solomon completes his prayer, we're going to pick it up and just... So you know, we're only going to read a few verses, but in the fullness of this chapter, they celebrated for a couple of weeks during the time of tabernacles, just the joy of the Lord and his faithfulness to him, and the people went home joyful and rejoicing in the Lord. It was just an amazing, amazing event, and truly it was the high watermark of Solomon's life, that he had been faithful. In fact, the Bible says later on in this chapter that he finished the work, and he was successful, and he finished the work. But tonight we're going to look at those first few moments when the prayer was done, what happened after that. And it's amazing when you really think about it. So he had just, you know, prayed to the Lord, proclaimed the praises of the Lord. And then it says in verse 1 of chapter 7, When Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple, and the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. When all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed their faces to the ground on the pavement. They worshiped and they praised the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his mercy endures forever. What an amazing moment. There's certain verses in the Bible that you know them, like John 3.16, something like that. But there's certain verses you should know that you don't, but you just, when you read them, you just go like, wow, this is a wow verse. As I looked at this passage, since I taught Tuesday night and taught three chapters, you, Wednesday through Thursday, I kind of figure out which, where I'm going out for topical. I kind of eliminate what I'm not going to do, start focusing on what I'm going to do. And as I kept coming in, and honing in on this passage, it just kept coming back to these first few verses because they're so profound and so amazing because we know what it's like to live in time, space, and matter. And most of we, what we know of the Lord is by hearing and by faith. We see God working in our life. If we have the eyes of faith, he'll confirm himself to us. But by and large, what Jesus said to Thomas applies to most of us. Thomas said, I won't see, I won't believe unless I see But then Jesus appeared to Thomas and said, see, here's my hands, put your fingers in there. And Thomas said, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said, blessed are you because you see and believe. But how much more are those who are blessed who having not seen believe? We're told that we're saved by faith. We walk by faith. We live by faith. And faith is the substance of things hoped for. The evidence not yet seen. And by faith, we see eternity. We see Jesus in his glory. We see him high and lifted up. And we see the day of the Lord. In fact, we're told by Jesus himself to be watching and ready for the day of the Lord and to see it by faith every day. 
to store up our treasures there and to set our minds there. So this text gets our attention because this brings the day of the Lord into time. This is eternity coming into time. This is not June gloom or gray May marine layer clouds, right? This is the real deal. This is the, whenever the cloud of the Lord shows up, we've been talking about this, it's the glory of the Lord. It's his presence among men in time, space, and matter. His dimension comes over it and supersedes it. It's an amazing experience that they're having here at this temple dedication. As I look at this text, I think of the phrase that comes in this chapter and preceded it, that it's a dedication. So what we're going to look at tonight, we can say at the dedication for the house of the Lord. And it's sort of a variety pack from this text because these things are linked by this event, but their topics stand on their own. The first one is prayer that brings fire down from heaven. Wow. Uppercase all the way. Prayer that brings down fire from heaven. That's what I'm talking about right there, worship generation, body of Christ. We want to be women and men, young people and senior citizens, that when we pray, we bring fire down from heaven. Now, this is an interesting phrase because fire literally came down from heaven and consumed the sacrifices. Can you imagine everyone there that's there like, you knew it was going to be the event of your lifetime, but to see fire come, Solomon prays and then fire comes down from heaven? How does it even happen? Is that like a, a, a Florida thunder bumper? A Dallas-Fort Worth, you know, tornadic storm? Like, what's that look like when fire comes down from heaven? Like, who knows? But for sure, I know what it does. It makes you fall on your face on the pavement. Fire from heaven following prayers that God honored. Later on, about a century or so later, it was Elijah who prayed when he had the conflict with the prophets of Baal. He prayed for fire from heaven to come down and consume the sacrifice to confirm to the people of Israel that the God of Israel is the true God and these false prophets of Baal are worshiping a false God. He said, you know, how long will you falter? Choose this day. Like, if Baal's God, serve him. But if the Lord Jehovah's God, then serve him. And the God who brings fire is the God of the universe. God of the burning bush. And the fire came down. And the fire came down to glorify the Lord and confirm the Lord in a conflict with those who are opposed to the Lord. Here the fire of the Lord came down just to glorify the Lord for those who were serving the Lord as the people of the Lord. To just know that for the rest of their timeline and their children's children and children's children, they could tell them, you know, fire came down from heaven to confirm what this temple represents, what we hear here, what we do here, what we, who we are when we leave here. The fire of God in time, space, and matter that followed prayer. Later on in the ministry of Jesus, you might recall near the latter part of his ministry where there's a lot of conflict, John and James, when Jesus was rejected there in a Samaritan village, John and James said, hey, Lord, should we call down fire on these people? That was the idea of calling down fire. Can we just, can, can we just call down fire on these people? You know, there's a lot of people on planet Earth that would call down fire on people if they could, Right? But that's not what holy fire is for. Jesus said, or the Lord says, uh, the Father says to Ezekiel, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. It's not about calling down fire to see people consumed in wrath. 
It's about calling down fire from heaven to see people saved by grace. That's the beauty of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, it says there in verse 1 that he had finished praying and fire came down from heaven. This, of course, gets us thinking about prayer and the prayers of a righteous woman, the prayers of a righteous man that availed much. The power of prayer. And when we think about praying, you know, Jesus gave us the Lord's Prayer. When you pray, pray in this manner. Our Father art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Praying for our daily bread, praying for spiritual protection, praying for forgiveness. That's a consistent, it's a pattern of prayer. It's a consistent prayer to guide your day when you start the new day. Give the Lord, spend time with the Lord. Again, through Ezekiel, we know the Lord said, I look for someone to stand in the gap, but I found no one. So he looks for intercessors, people that will pray for other people. You find as you grow in the Lord, you start out praying, thanking the Lord for food, or as I did in 1987, good waves, not getting angry with other people when they took the good waves that I wanted, and I thought that was my wave. That's how my prayers began. But as you progress in, in the Lord, you start realizing how important it is to pray for other people. You become aware of their needs. The Bible tells us to, to bear one another's burdens and begin to pray for others and care about others and lift them up in prayer. We know that a healthy, a strong, a healthy Christian walk is going to be a woman or a man that you see, they just, they, they kind of, they tilt the room, they carry themselves in a humble way because they're a praying woman, they're a praying man, and they make prayer a priority in their life. They don't go out in the world before they spend some time praying with the Lord before they show up in the office at the cubicle or whatever they're doing at the school to help or whatever, they, they spent time with the Lord. That man who goes to work and shows up is like, he's a praying man. You just know, like when Joseph showed up in the Old Testament to work at Potiphar's house, he was prayed up. That's how we want to be. So we have that kind of prayer, which is sort of like the compound effect of consistent prayer, consistently abiding in the Lord. If, if my word abides in you, you will ask what you will be done for you. And we know that like, there's a, con- there's a consistency element in prayer that we want to have on our daily basis. But I was really thinking about, man, prayer that brings fire from heaven, that's got a little more... You know, so if you've got a, like, you're like a pitcher and you can throw a curveball and a breaking ball and suddenly you've got a fastball that no one can swing around. It's like a whole other level. In fact, it's been proven when you talk about, even like in uh, sports or physiology, that when you have aerobic and anaerobic and you put them together, you get this explosive energy. See, pro surfing is a combination of both those things. When I would compete, and when they compete now in pro surfing, you're moving for 30 minutes. There's no timeouts. It's all happening. You don't know what the ocean's going to give you. You have a good plan. The tide changes. The wind comes up. Things happen. But it's aerobic because you're moving. It's consistent. You're paddling. You're doing this. Even if you're sitting waiting for a wave, you're still like the adrenaline. You know, the, the, the adrenaline, it's It's moving. Back in the day before we had the jet skis that would take the surfers back to the lineup, we'd have to paddle against a current in Australia. You'd catch a wave and paddle for 15 minutes against that current on the Gold Coast. Get back to the lineup. You got three minutes to get this wave to flip the heat on Shane Haran. It was aerobic. It was nonstop. It's aerobic. But then when you're on the wave, it's anaerobic. It's explosive. You've you're got this steady pace like a marathon runner like this, and then all of a sudden, man, you got to sprint a 100-meter dash right in the middle of the marathon. Mile 17, Long Beach. You, all of a sudden, like, whoa, what happened? The girl just kicked it in. That's the aerobic within the anaerobic. And really, when you think about basketball and you watch high-level basketball, it's aerobic, and then suddenly, you know, all of a sudden, Michael Jordan's exploding to the basket. It's, it's the aerobic, the anaerobic, 
the explosive within the aerobic. In other words, consistency, explosion, consistency, explosion. So I think here when we look at this prayer that's, that brings fire from heaven, that's the, that's the anaerobic. That's the explosive prayer. It's not everyday prayer that brings fire from heaven. Everyday prayer keeps your mind in a good state of being, keeps your heart pure, helps you forgive other people, cast your cares upon the Lord. But I think like prayer from heaven is like, it's a prayer that moves mountains. That's what it is. Fire, prayer with fire moves mountains. So I want to read this text, what Jesus said right before he stepped into eternity. There in that week in Jerusalem with all the conflict, in Matthew 21, when he cursed the fig tree, and they came back to the fig tree, and the apostles like, wow, the tree, it's, you curse it, and then this happened. Jesus said this in verse 21. He said to them, talking apostles, Assuredly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, it will be done. And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. That is a promise for every disciple of Jesus Christ. And not just for the apostles, because when he gave them the Great Commission, he said, go make disciples of all nations and teach them what I've taught you. That's our promise. And if you study men and women who've changed the world for Jesus Christ, they've changed it with prayer that brings fire from heaven. They have brought revivals to this country. They've changed the destiny of other nations and they've turned it around. Prayer is the power of God on earth for the people of God who are headed for heaven and glory. And so this is a good reminder to us to be faithful in prayer, but really like I would say, let's find the fire on the 19th year of worship generation. On the first year of your marriage, in the second month of graduating high school, let's find a fire before we show up for the first day of college. Yeah? Let's find the fire. Let's get on our knees and find some fire before you move out of state to another state and start a new life. Find some fire. Bring some fire to the old folks' home. Bring some fire to work where everyone's lethargic and beaten down with bad management. Bring some fire. Bring some prevailing prayer and bring fire, the fire, bring prayer that brings fire to that situation and turns it around. Break the log jam. You know, when things seize up, man, call on God and call on the power of heaven with believing prayer, bring fire and turn the tide. Whatever you're facing in your life in this summer of 2023, this text, as are all, all things are open and bare before whom we must give an account, man, these are real people that are just like you and me with real problems and real life. And someone's like, Yes, and the Lord's like, I honor that prayer. Boom, the fire. So you know how I think. I look at this and go like, you know what? I want some fire. If my fastball's at 95 miles an hour, I want to I click the gun at 101. Like, I just want to bring the heat, as they say in baseball. I want to find greater fire. Because we go from glory to glory. Some people have not because they ask not. And some people don't do anything because they don't care about anything. But as we press into the Lord and sincerely seek the Lord, he'll be putting things on our heart. He'll be showing us where to go, what to do, things are happening. And, you know, we'll plow, we'll run the marathon. But when he says in the 17th mile, hey, right here, explosive, explosive, let's go, let's go. They call that the acceleration because you have, 
you know, consistency, momentum, acceleration. See, momentum is like inertia where it goes like this, but we want the fire. That's what this is. This is the fire. What does God have for you and want to work through you in your prayer life that will bring fire from heaven? Whatever things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. I'm going to move on from this with this thought. I think it's a really good idea to look at your life, look at the person in the mirror, and say, let's bring some fire. Hey, you, let's bring some fire to planet Earth today. Yeah? Let's, let's move some mountains today. Let's, put San, let's give it an earthquake at San Gregorio. Let's get Big Bear thinking about what we're doing right now. We're bringing fire and we're moving mountains. That's how we live in Christ. What a great way to go on the day of the Lord, too, if you're bringing fire in your prayer life. You're bringing fire, and here comes the fire. Here comes the cloud, and you're, you're bringing fire, and here comes the cloud. That's a glorious ending for the, the human experience. Look at your people that you love, that you share the journey with, and bring the, the prayer of fire upon their lives, your children and your children's children. Look at your adversaries and bring the, the prayer of fire upon their lives for salvation and restoration with the Lord. Because most we know all people that are at war with the Lord they have all kinds of issues. Bring the fire of God upon their lives that God would help them through those issues so they can really live. Because it's the way that seems right to men, but then thereby is death. But Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and he brings and gives abundant life along with eternal life. Yeah, I look at this. I just, I look at this text this morning. I go, man, we spent praying about fire. How many people's prayers in the Bible bring fire? Bring fire. Bring fire to your world. Bring fire to the people you love and the people that hate you. Bring fire. Not the fire that consumes the city because they reject Jesus, but the fire that brings the power and the glory of God to them, that they can know Jesus and and know his presence, his glory, and his promises. It's about faith. It's about believing. The prayer that brings fire from heaven, that's who we want to be. The second thing we see in this text is the humility that bows the knee. Did you catch that one? So the word glory pops up here. Eh, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Oh, the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. And the glory of the Lord uh, uh, on the temple. So three times we're told glory, 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 temple, temple, temple. And it is the presence of the Lord. It's a cloud of the Lord. And so we get this here. There it is. They bowed their faces to the ground on the pavement. They bowed their faces to the ground on the pavement. They bowed the knee. They bowed the knee. We know that God was just a proud, but he gives grace to the humble. We know that. Humility is an interesting thing. We've kind of touched on it a little bit as we've, the last few weeks. But humility is a funny thing because no matter how much we want to have a disposition of humility, no matter how much we want to move toward humility, we still, no matter what, in the quickest of moments, in the simplest of things, move toward pride. Have you noticed that in your own life? Like, it's amazing. Like, like, I'm feeling pretty humble right now. I feel good. Like, okay, that's not bothering me. And then just something happens where it's like, wow, the pride flares up. And like, why am I being prideful? Like, what's there to be prideful about? But we, we have that disposition in us. So we have to really be alert to, to proactively seek humility. I've mentioned this, but the first thing I pray for every day, number one on the list when I start my prayer time, is humility. I pray for humility and gratitude and then faith and obedience. I figured those four things, that's a, that's a four pack that's worth having. That's a four square. 
humility, that means God can use me and I'm not going to get offended and I'm not going to offend people as easily because arrogant, prideful people tend to offend people. But humble people rarely offend people. They bless people. People like humble people. Gratitude, well, it's hard to be murmuring when you're grateful, right? So the murmurs and the backbiters, the whispers and the, you know, those that sow discord, they're, 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 God has a lot to say about them. That's not who we want to be. We want to be grateful. So humility and gratitude, and of course, like I said, faith and obedience, we want to bring fire and we want to obey the Lord, which helps bring the fire. But they bowed the knee. This, this moment was so holy. It was so special. The glory, the glory, the glory, the temple, the temple, the temple. And they're at the temple, at the dedication, all the people. Like, you know, you didn't need, like, sometimes you can get a rah-rah church service going. We don't really get those here. But, you know, sometimes like, hey, let's all do this and let's all do that. If you've ever been to a rah-rah service, I have too. It's okay. I'm okay with that. But you don't need a rah-rah on this one. You don't need an event MC to tell everybody, hey, this is where we bow the knee. When the cloud comes in the glory, <laughs> nobody, excuse me, WG, this is where we bow the knee right now. No, you already bowed the knee. Everybody bowed the knee. When the presence of the Lord comes in glory of the Lord, I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to bow the knee. We're going to fall on our face, humble ourselves, and bow the knee. Now, we are told in the book of Isaiah, this is where it starts, because there's a text from Isaiah that sets in motion things about bowing the knee in the New Testament, so this is important. In the book of Isaiah, so it's about a couple hundred years after this, God says through Isaiah, as I live, says the Lord, every knee is going to bow before me. Okay, that, that makes sense. He's the God of the universe, trillion galaxies, we're on planet Earth, our life is a vapor. Yes, he's, he's the potter and we're the clay. We're going to bow the knee, absolutely. He's the rock, there's no God like our God. But then in the New Testament, Paul the Apostle, led by the Holy Spirit, right in the Philippians says, the Philippian church, he says that as I live, says the Lord, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That, that's a should. By the way, in a lot of business things and business orientations and business speaking, they tell you, you should try and stay away from words like must or should. Well, <laughs> when the Holy Spirit says you should bow the knee, I'm not softening the landing. If the Holy Spirit says we should bow the knee, then we should bow the knee. If someone's offended because we say, hey, bow the knee to Lord Jesus Christ, then they're offended. Either you can, you can, you can bow the knee in time or you'll bow it in eternity, but you will bow the knee. That's the fascinating thing about this concept of bowing before the Lord. Now, his glory came, they fell on their faces, and they bowed to the pavement. They bowed the knee. We're told in time we should bow the knee and that confess that Christ is Lord. So that's that saving faith, right? When, you're truly, when you truly come to the Lord and you're born again, like there's a humility there. And, you know, you don't have to be crying necessarily, but in the heart there's a, uh, you know, you, you, you bow the knee. Because I was raised Catholic, I never had a problem standing, sitting, and kneeling. You know, it was part of the routine. So kneeling is not that hard for me. It's kind of in my, my DNA. But I'll tell you what was hard for me. Saying that when people said they were saved, and if they asked me if I was saved, I was like, what do you mean saved? I saved myself. And the other thing that bothered me was people raising their hands during worship. So when it, with my Catholic background, when I was a do-gooder, not really, but whatever, and I would go to churches where the, you know, people were worshiping and praising the Lord with their hands raised. 
I'd be like, oh, man, that is, that's really embarrassing. Like, who does that? Like, stick them up. You know, like, who does that? Like, that is really, that's really, like, I don't know. Like, uh, uh. Why don't we just stand, sit, kneel, stand, sit, kneel? That works. Like, why, why are we doing this? You know, hallelujah. Brother, are you saved? Of course I'm saved. I survived pipeline for 10 years. Like, I, when people asked me if I was saved, it bothered me because it meant I needed someone to save me. And I wasn't willing to bow the knee. I had religious pride. And when people were raising their hands in worship, I was like, oh, put those hands down. <laughs> that, is, that is really bothering me. But when I got saved, I wasn't afraid to tell people I was saved. And I was the guy in the front row with my hands raised. And I've told the story, but when I went to that church at North Coast Calvary, and Mickey Yarbrough was in the front row, and he was one of my friend, my brother's friends, he's like, Joey, come up front. I was like, and I was really nervous. I had like told, I was having like anxiety attack. I went to church by myself. I was like, you know, church phobia. Listen, no one knows church phobia like I do. I was terrified in that car in that parking lot, but I went in. And he was like, and, and they had the good worship going. It was a Calvary Chapel. And, 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 and you know, Mickey and these guys like, all oh, this. I'm, I'm like, and I, I was, I'm serious. I, had, I went baby hands. Like some of you kind of go like this. That's good too, you know. But I was kind of like, but you know, it was a pretty, it was a pretty Pentecostal Calvary Chapel too. And they're, they're like a rocker, you know. And, you know, and everyone's doing it. It's like, okay, okay already. Yes. I was bowing the knee when I was raising my hands. I was bowing the knee. It's, it's the heart. It's the humility before the heart, but in the heart before the Lord. So we, we have the prayer that brings fire from heaven, but we have the humility that bows the knee before the Lord. It's a disposition of heart. And Paul said that we should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, and we should bow the knee. That's what every human being should do on planet Earth today. That's, or as the great preacher Charles Spurgeon said, it's a narrow gate with a low ceiling. Right? It's a low ceiling. So we all come the same way. There's a, there's a universal equality in how we're saved. We're saved through faith in Jesus Christ and under the blood. There's no getting around that. This is, this is a narrow gate. It's the way that leads to life. And few enter thereby. That's, you're coming in. It's a low ceiling. Because you've got to bow the knee. You raise your arms or bow the knee. But you, you're going to realize that you need to be saved. Now, later on in the book of Romans, chapter 14, again led by the Holy Spirit... Or at a different time in the book of Romans, when Paul wrote Romans, he said that in eternity every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And technically, he wrote Romans before Philippians. So that would mean he told everyone that they will first, and then he told them that they should second. In Romans, he said, God says through Paul, using that Isaiah 54 passage, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. So, if you put that together, in the New Testament, we're told that we should bow the knee and we should confess that Jesus is Lord. It's a logical thing to do. It makes sense. It's the truth. He's, he's good. Everything God does is good. We bow the knee to all kinds of people all the time, whether we realize it or not. We raise our hands to people all, all the time, whether we realize it or not. We praise the glory of men and we bow to the glory of men. Quite often, most people do in one way, shape, form, or another. But here's the radical thing about this idea of them bowing their faces to the ground on the pavement is when we come to a saving faith, we do it in our heart in time, space, and matter. We go into eternity, and guess what happens in eternity? There in Revelation chapter 4, there's the 24 elders. 
And for all the different opinions that people have that believe the Bible on the book of Revelation and different elements of it, most what we call evangelical Christians generally agree that the 24 elders are, represent the church of Jesus Christ in eternity. You say, well, why is that? Well, they sing a song that they've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Now, the church has been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. That's, that's what we know. Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Peter says we've been redeemed not with gold and silver, which is corruptible, but with the precious blood of the Lamb. Right? So, so there are the 24 elders in Revelation when they're before the Father's throne, the rainbow, the four living creatures, the glory. They all fall on their faces, the 24 elders, and they worship God Almighty. But then in chapter 5, when they say who's worthy to open the scroll, the title deed of earth, Jesus, who's the land that was slain before the foundation of the world, he comes forward, he takes it, and the last verse of chapter 5 is, there the 24 elders bow the knee and they proclaim the praises of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, there as well. What are you saying, Joy? I'm saying that those who bow the knee in time, space, and matter, who choose to, because it is self-determined in time, space, and matter, free will that God gives us, we have a choice. He's not going to make us in time. He will make you in eternity, but he's not going to make you in time. But if you do it in time, you understand what's the greatest thing ever is to praise and worship the Lord. Be in the front row with Mickey at North Coast Calvary, 1987. Like, hallelujah. You know, like, that's the best thing ever. That's the greatest joy you'll ever have is praising the Lord in the house of God. So you get to eternity, and you praise the Lord there in the glory before the glorious throne of God, and you cast your crowns before the Lord, and you're bowing the knee. You've already done it in time, space, and matter. It's easy to do in eternity. All things are made by him and for him, and in him all things are held together and consist. It's our very purpose of existence to bow the knee and praise the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. That's why we're alive, all of us. When you're one cell in your mother's womb, you're being created to bring praise to the Lord because he alone is worthy of praise. And he wants to love us and receive love and have that fellowship with us. And in heaven, we'll be bowing the knee. That's what we see in Revelation 4 and Revelation chapter 5. So the more you can let God work in your life and the more you can have that disposition to walk in humility and bow the knee now, it just makes it easier for then. Not only that, it makes it more joyful then. In fact, I'm going to suggest to you, the more that you're able to do it in time, probably the more deeper level of joy and understanding there is for it in eternity. Because eyes not seen nor ear heard those things that God has prepared for those who love him. And as we bow the knee in our hearts with the Lord in time, can you imagine how glorious it is in eternity? But for those who reject the Lord in time, space, and matter in their journey of life, we're told from that Romans passage that every knee will bow and every tongue is going to confess. And there in Revelation, when Jesus, who's Lord of all, opens the books, those books of unbelief, and everyone's going to stand before the Lord who rejected Christ. They're going to see how many times he tried to get their attention, how many times he tried to save them, and how many times he rejected them. He's going to cast them out And before they're cast out, I'm going to tell you what they're going to do. They're going to bow the knee. They're going to bow the knee in eternity. And even in the gnashing of their teeth, they're going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's not one soul creating God's image that's ever lived that will not do one of those two things, bowing the knee in time with joy and glory in eternity or bowing the knee before going out of outer darkness by self-determined hells that we've built for ourselves in unbelief. So you know what? Let the cloud fall. Let's just fall on the pavement. Let's get in the front row with Mickey and start praising the Lord. Yeah? Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Bow the knee. Like, oh, sometimes I look at myself in the mirror like, why are you being prideful? 
There's no photo that will make you look younger than 60 now. It's, it's just you, you cross the Rubicon. You cross that line. There's no going back. There's nobody in Orange County can fix this. You're going to look over 60 the rest of the journey. Just live with it. Yeah, yeah. But, okay? So we bow the knee. Now, the third thing we see here at this dedication is the praise that proclaims the goodness of God. We already did that tonight, didn't we? Oh, yeah. Uh, Danny and Olivia had us singing it, didn't they? See, I know the text. He doesn't know the text. He didn't know I'm teaching that. That's the beauty of it. See, I know when I'm getting ready to teach, God's preparing the worship leaders getting ready to lead worship. And when I got here and they're singing that song, I'm like, oh, man, he got the same playbook, didn't he? He got the memo I got. Oh, the overwhelming goodness of God. Yes, we just sang it. We sang it before I got up here. We were proclaiming the praises. Look what it says there. So they're on their faces, and it says, they worshiped, and they praised the Lord, saying, okay, so they're proclaiming praises, and they're saying, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. And it was David who had taught them that they needed to wake up and live for the very purpose, some of these singers, to sing every day the Lord is merciful and proclaim his praises. So we have prayer that brings fire from heaven. We have humility. We have the humility that, that bows the knee. And then we have the praise that proclaims the goodness of God. It was David who said it there in Psalm 34, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And he will never disappoint or let down those who put their trust in him. It's a beautiful little phrase. He says, you know, lions can go hungry, but the person that trusts in the Lord, God's got his back, her back in the entire journey. David knew the goodness of God, even when he was chastened by God and failed God. And he proclaimed it. You get those churches in the South. Being in Virginia Beach, there's lots of, Different churches. Yeah, our neighbors there in uh, Virginia Beach, old Derek, he was black, and he went to an all-black church in the South, and he was Pentecostal. And we had a great relationship. And he'd be like, I'd be like, God's good. He'd be like, all the time. God is good all the time. It was in their DNA at the church. Was like, God is good, uh-huh, all the time. I appreciate that kind of expression. If I say to you, God is good, you know what you should say? All the time. So I'll say it right now. God is good. God is good. That's right, WG. In 18 years of this church, he has only done good, and everything he does is for good all the time. And if I say all the time, you're going to say God is good. So all the time. All the time. That's right. That's what it's like to pastor in Virginia Beach in the 90s right there. I mean, that's what I'm talking about. God is good all the time. Taste and see that the Lord is good. We need to be reminded the Lord is good because the devil spends a good deal of his mischief trying to convince people that God is not good and that he is good. But the devil is a father of lies. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. God is light and him is no darkness at all. Everything he does in our life is good all the time. And we can trust him in every situation I mentioned the other night, I just finished the book of Job. I must be getting older. I'm getting a little slower because when I was younger and I'd get to Job, I read through my Bible every two and a half years. When I get to Job, I'm like, I don't like this book. I don't like anything about this book. I don't like my wife mad at me. I don't like losing my kids or all my money. I don't like any of it. And these knuckleheads talking nonsense for you know, 20 chapters. I don't like them either. So, you know... I, I historically would read Job in like two days, for real. 
It's pretty, I think I'm just going through it. It's like a stretch on a road trip like West Texas. You just want to drive through it. El Paso to Fort Stockton. You just, there's nothing to see. Just keep driving. That's how I used to feel about Job. But you know, I thought, you know, I want to take my time with Job this time. I spent two weeks in Job. Now, Job is the book we associate with things going wrong. He's the answer to, if God's good, why does he allow bad? Or why do bad things happen to good people, right? Isn't the Job, you know, he's that guy. Like, wow. Like, the, the Bible tells us in the first chapter of Job, he's an upright, just an upright man. He's a good, he's a good guy. And then he has all these things that he goes through as a test and testimony of his faith. Everything, physical pain, loss of loved ones, loss of all of his wealth. I mean, that's, the, that's, that, that's D, all the above. And a wife that's complaining, make that E, all the above. You know, like, that's just, that's just not good. And friends that come in, say it's your fault, make that F, all the above, right? Like, it's just a checklist of everything that can go wrong, what wrong in his life. But the beauty of it is, in the very end of the, the book, and I read this this morning, it seems so appropriate. Job says before the Lord, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. I'm, I've, heard, I've heard of you before, and now I see you. My eyes have seen you. And I've hoard myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. So that was just, that was Job's perspective as it reflected on his ordeal and his, literally, you can call it a captivity, because that's what the Hebrew calls it. But then in the latter part of chapter 42, it's so, such a happy ending. It says that the Lord restored Job's losses. And the word literally means captivity. So all that he lost, the Lord restored it. So he restored his losses. And then it says, indeed, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. So it was lost and twofold, twofold, double what he lost. He passed the test. And then it says in verse 12, the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than in the beginning. Listen, for you young people that don't think you'll ever get old, take it from me, you will. And as you get older, you think like, you know, if the Lord wants to give me more blessings in the latter days, I'm receiving it because God is good all the time, right? Okay, so like I'm receiving it. Everyone over 55, if I tell you tonight that the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning, wouldn't you feel better about moving towards 70 and 80 and upward? That's a great happy ending, right? God is good all the time, and he has good things for us. And then it says, In all the land were found no women as beautiful as the daughters of Job, and their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. Isn't that what dads want to do, is give their daughters an inheritance? You dads of daughters? Isn't that what you want to do? And have the Holy Spirit say of your daughters, there's no daughters as beautiful as your daughters in all the land? Because like the Proverbs 31 women, they're beautiful inwardly and outwardly. They're amazing women. This is the Holy Spirit says that of him. So he lost all, the, all of his children the first time around, and then God gave him a whole other, you know, he gave him sons and daughters, three daughters, seven sons. And then the book ends with this. And Job lived 140 years, saw his children and grandchildren for four generations, and he died old and full of age. By the way, if you don't know what a movie should look like when it has a happy ending, that's a happy ending. The end. Credits, roll the credits right now. Like, that's a beautiful ending. And so the story of Job is amazing because it's a painful book to read when you're reading it. And then suddenly it all worked together for good. It's Romans 8.28. It all worked together for good. 
But the most beautiful thing about it is the New Testament in the book of James tells us that we know the end the Lord had intended for Job, and it was a beautiful ending. And so when they proclaimed to hear at this temple in this glory, when they praised the Lord and proclaimed his goodness, everything they would have proclaimed is 100% true. We can proclaim the praises of people that may be partially true or not true at all. Well, we might say maybe three bullet points that are absolutely true about a person. But if you, you talk about a person long enough, you can bring up things that are their uh, blemishes and their faults. But when we talk about the Lord and the Lord Jesus Christ, everything we say is beautiful. Because everything true, just, and noble, and praiseworthy is the Lord. Everything is beautiful. Isn't it wonderful to come here twice a week, if you do, or whatever services you come or visit randomly, and to sing songs like this, and just focus on the Lord, and know that everything, not most things, everything is good. That he's done in time, space, and matter. That he's going to do in your life and wants to do in your future. Everything is good. What a wonderful story of how it worked. So I would encourage you in the morning when you wake up and you say, let's call down some prayer of fire from heaven and remind yourself before you walk away from the mirror, hey, God is good all the time. Yeah? Yes and amen.